Welcome to The Vine, a plant media project podcast with your hosts, Elizabeth Sheldon and Gina Vensel. The Vine is an insightful look into the world of plant medicine, exploring the changing landscape around cannabis and psychedelics and ending the stigma through educational discussions. The Vine podcast does not offer medical advice nor condone any use of illegal substances. Consult your physician or therapist before making changes to your wellness plan and before trying alternative healing medicines. Today, we welcome Will Bowden, founder and CEO of Grasshopper Farms, one of the most successful outdoor cannabis grow operations in Michigan. Will's service in the U.S. Navy, coupled with his 14 years of work in the pharmaceutical industry, provided the experience he needed to produce a licensed cannabis operation with three retail locations, an indoor cultivation, and outdoor grow. Welcome, Will. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. Welcome, Will. Just wondering if you might tell us how a lieutenant commander from the U.S. Coast Guard became interested in cannabis, and then you went on to start Grasshopper Farm. Yeah, I think that's a great question and a logical one at that, too. So, you know, I was uh, I was born in Santa Cruz, California, and I'm not going to go all the way back through my childhood and everything. <laughs> I just say that because Santa Cruz was a very open environment for this industry from the time that I was born. And I fully recognize and appreciate all of the complexity that has gone through the legality of this particular product. But we're coming out on the other side of that now. Right. So my life's decisions, though, um, I was a police officer for a while. I was in the military active duty in the Navy side. And then I was reserve on the Coast Guard side. It just kept me out of this industry from a use perspective or from a working perspective. But I did look at it about nine or 10 years ago, and I had an appreciation for the business opportunity that existed in this industry for other people, though, right? It was an observation, not an aspiration, because I had no plans of retiring and hanging up my uh, commission as, a, as an officer in the Coast Guard at the time. But wouldn't you know it, this is how the universe works. Um, I retired October of 2018, and it was that same month that I ended up meeting somebody who was also former military, and we were just getting to know each other. When he had learned what I had done as a law enforcement officer in the military and then also in corporate America at Merck, uh, he said, well, we, we're doing something pretty cool over here. Why don't you take a look? They started a business out of Wilmington, Delaware, that was aspiring to have cannabis licenses in multiple states. And they ended up making me an offer that my wife and I sat down and talked about for weeks going, is this really happening? Is this something that we're actually going to consider and do? Obviously, the answer was ultimately yes. And that's what initially brought me into the industry, uh, working for another company and starting by operationalizing and licenses in the state of Michigan. And you have both indoor and outdoor grows. And so this just, this completely, I mean, it's just such completely different operations. And so I wondered if you could take some time to talk with us about that. You know, what are the pluses and minuses for having both an indoor and outdoor grow? And from an op operational standpoint, how does the end product differ? Yeah, so so Grasshopper Farms, um, I think it's very important in life that you know what your identity is or what it is you're trying to grow into. And I think that one of the first things I see in this industry, and this is probably true of any explosively, like rapidly growing industries, is that people are struggling to figure out what do I want to be in that industry when the industry itself doesn't even know its own potential, right? But nonetheless, I think you do have to have an identity. So our identity is a single season premium outdoor flower for retail. So we don't really focus on the indoor component of it at this point as far as a core competency goes. The reason why though is this, when I was working for my last company, 
um, I, I came across a study that was back in 2011 that said that indoor grow was occupying 1% of the U.S. power grid. And I said, well, mm. that's not sustainable. And I know there's a lot of changes that we'll go through from LED lights and everything else that's out there, but it's still just not sustainable from a total demand perspective in a completely legalized U.S. market, I don't think. And so I started looking at the outdoor grow as something that I really wanted to investigate and understand why, right? And so that I think this goes back to the, the why indoor versus outdoor and the quality there too. What I found was, is that uh, long ago when this became illegal, a lot of folks went inside just simply to hide from the law and they wanted to keep doing something they loved doing, okay? But over time, what happened was, and it's not just decades, it's actually generations, you had people who transitioned to becoming very, very good indoor growers versus outdoor farmers. And so as this became legalized again, and people started going outside just for sheer space, but also resources like sunlight, like water, um, they found that it was very hard to grow outside. And suddenly there was a stigma that's starting to, to um, spread out there saying that outdoor quality was lesser than indoor quality. And it wasn't because the quality of the plant is bad or worse. It's simply because the discipline between indoor grower and outdoor farmer is very, very different. And anybody who knows the industries or any, any kind of farming will tell you that to be true, right? So what we started to do then is, is we, we went down the path of doing the outdoor grow as our single core competency. Where the indoor grow component comes into this is that we also want to grow our exact same strains inside in our facility as the same time that they're growing outside. So genetically, they're the same. They're taken from the same mother plant. They're just growing in two different places, but being taken care of by the exact same teams, right? So what we want to do is be able to show people that the quality of the outdoor plant is very, very good and should not be compared indoor versus outdoor. Instead, as the market matures, we're going to start to focus on things like cannabinoid profiles and terpene profiles, which I think that we'll start to see that the outdoor plants have the opportunity to develop very comprehensive profiles in both of those arenas. So your outdoor farm is comprised of 160 acres, make sure I get this right, 4,500 outdoor plants. And I'm just wondering, in round numbers, what does it cost to run an operation like that? And yeah. how many years does it take to make a profit? Yeah, so um, we are 160 acres. We, we chose not to develop all 160 acres. What we chose is to say, we're going to go do our core competency and we're going to really, we're going to crush it. And then only then after we have our operation dialed in and the market dictates, and that's the other part that I think some people might not pay as much attention to is then we'll expand as, as we find the opportunity with the market there. So we actually, last year we had 5,164 plants outside um, on 40 acres of that 40 acres, 32 acres is the fenced in area where the beds are, the outdoor beds are. Eight acres is support buildings and infrastructure because the plants start inside before they go outside. Um, we did not leverage all of our plant count nor all of our property. And I think part of the answer there is, is where I started, where we wanted to be very good at what we do before we expand into it. But then also the market has to have demand for it. So initially we were granted eight licenses and 14,000 plants. We actually leveraged four of those licenses and 7,000 plants. And we did not plant all 7,000 of those plants because it wasn't about the number of plants. It was about the quality of plants. That's what we were really focusing on there. So that's why you'll see the difference there on the numbers as far as plant count goes and the acreage goes. As far as what does it cost to actually build something like this, there's, there's a lot of different ways to build things. But 
I think that it's important for people to know it's going to be more expensive than they think, right? So to build a farm like we've built, it's going to cost you in the neighborhood of around $5 million. That's building everything. That's paying everybody. That's taking yourself through time as you're going through sales. And the sales come in slow because you're building a brand. Um, that's It's going to cost you a lot of money to do that. Um, profitability really depends on what's going on in the market. And specifically this year in Michigan, something interesting happened. Last November, there was a recall of $250 million worth of product. And so it was the first recall of that nature in Michigan. And I think of that size in the United States. And so what happened was, this is Will talking right now, um, all of that product gets recalled. The state initially did not say what it was going to take or if that product could go back out. Um, they then said what it will take. But in the meantime, people are already super, super nervous, right? You just suddenly lost all of the revenues on all that product that's out there. People are already demanding returns and refunds and everything else, right? So then the state says, here's what it takes now to make that product safe and to go back out to market. So then everybody sent that stuff back out at a deeply discounted rate in addition to a lot of what we associate with what's called croptober, just more supply after the October harvest. So profitability this year is going to be lesser so because of that recall, I believe, until we recover from that recall, which I think is going to be towards the end of April, beginning of May is when we'll see that turn around. Either way, we're going to be fine. We're, we're going to be uh, paying for ourselves. We'll be paying back some of our investors. We'll be paying our all of our employees. So we'll be in a good place. I think the profitability we're looking for, though, will probably come in years two, three, and four is really when that will come around. And by the way, that's traditional, right? You should expect that when you're starting out in any industry that you're not going to be profitable for probably five years. Right. That's what they say. Take, five years. Yeah. yeah <laughs> five years. Right. Absolutely. And and I think that we'll be, we'll be um, lucky on the aspect of this business is growing right now. Michigan is growing. Michigan is a huge, huge market right now for the United States. Um, so those those variables is why I think it won't be five years, it'll be less. And I just wanted to um, ask you one more thing. So is it safe to say that an indoor grow is more profitable since you have a growing season year round or is that a misnomer? So I think that's a little bit of a misnomer uh, only because this all comes down to yield. OK, so when you talk to growers, they're going to talk about either canopy or plant count. And really the reason why we talk about those two things is because of how the state is licensed, right? So if you hear people talking only about canopy, it's probably because that state licensed in a way where they govern canopy versus plant count. In Michigan, it's plant count, right? So I'm just gonna talk about plant count for a second. At the end of the day, all growers are looking at lights and canopy, but I'm gonna talk about plant count because of how it's regulated. So in the state of Michigan, if, if you have your plant count number, let's just say that's 100 just for simplicity here, each plant for an indoor grow is probably going to give you about a quarter pound, and that's that's ready for retail flour, quarter pound of flour per cycle. You'll probably have on average of around five cycles per year, okay? So that's that's a number that we can calculate very quickly, right? Versus on the outdoor plants, if we have that same 100 plants, if you have the right grow team, this is very, that's where some of these contingencies hop in here you probably will be able to yield between five and eight pounds per plant. Oh my and so already you can see how the numbers sway. Now, there's a lot of logistics in there though on how do you take care of a once a year plant versus a once every cycle plant because this is a plant. At the end of the day, it's gonna start falling apart as it gets goes through the drying and curing process and how long can you preserve it and things like that. So there's other factors in there. 
but you can quickly see how the outdoor grow can absolutely keep up with and even surpass the indoor grow as long as the quality is there if your intention is that that be bulk flower for retail versus biomass. Biomass is another great market for outdoor as well. Can you imagine a better you? Empathic Health is a global community providing support so you can find more fun, freedom, and connection in your life. Empathic Health is my integration solution for incorporating my healing work into my daily routine. Empathic Health has given me a space to use my voice to express my thoughts and be myself in a safe place. I'm excited to get to the type of work that gives my life more clarity and joy. Helping others has done nothing but help me in return. Know your medicine, know yourself. Join Elizabeth, myself, and the rest of the community today at empathic.health. I feel like um, my state of Pennsylvania has a lot that could learn from uh, this outdoor practices, you know, because right now in our in our state, the medical program does not allow for outdoor grows. Um, so that's not a part of what we even have available to us right now. And I'm curious, you know, do you think that states like mine, maybe as they become adult use, will consider outdoor grow? Yes, I do. I think every state's going to have to have it. If we just go back to that study, um, that in itself, I, I think what we're, is a reason why to go to allow for outdoor growth in addition to greenhouse, in addition to indoor. So all three of those disciplines are going to be necessary going forward. I think that this industry is somewhat of a big change management exercise in the United States right now. We were told very, very effectively for a very, very long time that this is not okay, right? And we were also told then that um, that that it was a gateway drug to other drugs. And you're going to hear me start calling this a reverse gateway drug because I believe that this product is actually helping people to have a healthier relationship with, if we just pick two things, alcohol and pain pain medications. And, and I say healthier because there is a way to have a healthy relationship with those things. But of the folks who are having an unhealthy relationship, there's a lot of research showing now and use case scenarios that cannabis is helping people to then have a healthy relationship, ergo the reverse gateway drug, if you will. But over all that time, that has been told to us it's not okay for a long, long, long time, especially the Reagan administration, right? They were very, very effective with this. Um, so I think it's change management. Now, on top of all that, with the accessibility of information in today's age, so I don't just want to call it television or social media or just the internet. It's all of those things plus more that are exposing people to things that might make them worry about an outdoor grow. So if I just pick an easy target, I think everybody's heard of Narcos Mexico. There is a really, really large outdoor grow that's featured on Narcos Mexico, and it leads to a lot of bad things. So I could understand with limited information how everybody might think that an outdoor grow is more susceptible to crime. Um, I don't believe that the statistics of the United States or other countries that have legalized it would show that that is the case. In fact, I think they show that's opposite of what happens is that actually crime goes down in those areas where they've regulated it to combat black market. And I say it like that because California is having a huge issue right now and black market is still penetrating that legalized market quite effectively. But if you go over to some other states, I can say in like Michigan, Michigan is having a very hard time on the black market side right now because of the accessibility of the commercial market. So I think that the outdoor grow is more of a misnomer and people making assumptions because I think in the absence of information, we make up our own, right? And so when I think about an outdoor grow, I think about there's gonna be people with machetes or machine guns walking around that to keep it safe. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, none of that is true. 
it ends up being just like any other farm. And thus, we've invited people to come to our farm to take a tour and regulators will come and say, well, this is way different than I thought it would be. And that's what we always anticipated folks do. So I think Pennsylvania will eventually come around and the other states who are um, thinking about it, they just need a, a quick sit down to understand that you're growing an inert plant that needs to go through a process before it comes active. And P.S. people don't usually pay attention to it, except for about six weeks out of the year when it smells a little more outside. But even that isn't as strong as what most people think, you know, so it's it's all those things together. I'm all about the outdoor grow, even for the sustainability aspect alone. Yeah. You know, as someone that cares about the environment and thinks about, oh, you can love cannabis. But then if you think about, you know, how it's being grown indoors and the amount of power and water that it uses versus mother nature naturally growing in the soil and, and having that be available to us, I just would love to see more states as they become adult use include outdoor. And hopefully, you know, we can bring in professionals like you to talk to some of these politicians or to visit your farm, like you said, because I think a lot of this is just miseducation and people not having a true understanding of what an outdoor grow even looks like. You're you're exactly right, Gina. I I think that right now we're, so at Grasshopper Farms, we've got two, top two priorities are, number one is education. Education of what this industry is, but even more importantly, education of what this industry is not. And that's really where we got to help people understand. Number two is we all got to work together. Of, of any of the entities in this industry who consider themselves to be competitive with another company, I would say they probably don't understand the potential of this industry. And they're probably in a race to the bottom scenario that nobody wins in that, by the way. Um, and so they're really not helping uh, with the number one priority, which is education, because they're so focused on competitive activity against other people. We really just need to start working with each other and show people what this is. You know, I'd like to believe that giving consumers the ability to decide between an indoor and outdoor premium product is not just something we should do. It's necessary to do so that people understand they have options. A lot of times I'll mention like you can go to any grocery store and they're going to have an organic section. And that organic section is actually smaller on the footprint than everything else in that store. But it's still necessary. You still have a consumer population that that does desire to have that section. And the thing is, more people get to see our profile of our plants, they're going to want that outdoor option as well, because there's everything that goes into that. I mean, everyone talks about the sun and the rain being helpful. What about the effects of the moon on it? Or how about the wind and how mm. that impacts the plants mm-hmm. as well? These, are, these things actually do make a difference, and you don't get those inside. Now, let me be very clear. I think you can grow quality product inside, in greenhouse, or outdoor. You just have to know your identity and have the team who knows how to do it, Right. We have a team that knows how to grow outdoors in a premium definition of today, but also in a premium definition of tomorrow that will include a lot more looking at things like terpenes and other cannabinoids outside of THC and CBD. So that that just takes us right into you have some of the best third-party testing out there. I think that's how we came to talk to you initially. So how are you able to achieve those results? In such a short amount of time, too, actually, right? You all have not been up and running, but two years now? Well, so it's exciting. If we go off a licensure date, let, let's do that, okay. right? And, here, and here's why. This is what's so great. So sometimes the universe is screaming at you, giving you information. It's just whether or not you're, you're open to hearing it, right? So like all along our journey, I've told people that I don't use the word coincidence anymore because there's just too many things that have happened that just line up. So from a licensure perspective, we actually gained our final licensure approvals 
on April 20th, so 420 of last year. And that's when our mother plants moved in too. So that might not be a big deal to some folks. I get it. But it just happens to be the biggest day of the year for this industry. And that's when and we didn't plan it. We wanted our, our licensure and approvals like six weeks before that. But that just happened to be when we got it. And so all these things have been happening for us. So the short answer to what you just said is farming is hard. Okay. Indoor growing is hard too, but farming is hard. So one of the go, no go steps that I set for myself when investigating whether I wanted to do grasshopper farms was I had to find the right farmer who had already been doing this in Southwest Michigan at scale over a long period of time and premium quality that would pass the state tests, right? If I didn't find all four of that criteria, I would not be doing this today, but I found that. So the team that I've hired actually, so headed by Aaron, if you see on the website and then some of the folks he brought over, um, they've already been doing this for over 10 years. So really this was year one of grasshopper and, and it was year one of commercial for them. But prior to this, they were caregivers and they've been growing in the, the gray market of Michigan for the last 10 years uh, very successfully. So that's I, I, so it's, it's a bunch of things in there, but really it's the team, the genetics they brought over, and then the experience that they've had in, in growing and being able to replicate that at the grasshopper farms level now. And then we're just coming up on our one-year licensing um, anniversary. So that'll be fun too. So. <laughs> and then oh, you always get to have that special holiday be your anniversary forever. I mean, you can't beat that. No. I mean, the whole world's going to be celebrating your anniversary every year. Well, you're right. I mean, you, it's you, great. Can't, you can't beat it and you can't make it up. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just, and that's, and true. that's just that's one true. example of all these like things happening for us, you know, that kind of thing. So. I believe in that serendipity as well. You know, it's, it's, you know, when the signs in our life line up and tell us that we're doing the right thing and you found those, those, that right team and those right people. And we're seeing the success happen for you very, very quickly. And Michigan is just in the spotlight in terms of the cannabis space. I mean, there's just so much, I'm like, no matter what, I'm always seeing Michigan being talked about. And most recently in the news this past week, I saw about how Michigan was getting ready to open one of the first public consumption cannabis consumption lounges. So I wanted to know if you like knew anything about that, what it might look like and kind of think in can of tourism, would it be possible ever in Michigan where your grow site, where you do tours could actually become a consumption site? Yeah. So I, I love this because you can't develop a, a legalized program and then leave it up to everybody on where you go. That like, and, and basically what you're just saying is you got to go somewhere private to do it because if you're in public, while it might not be illegal, you might draw attention to yourself that you don't want, right? That kind of thing is how it works out. So I think it's actually very responsible of states and certainly Michigan in this case to do something like this. So up until that license became available, there were five different entities in the state of Michigan. And this is true of most states as well, right? So three of these can have overlapping co-ownerships. That would be the growing or cultivation. The second one would be process manufacturing, where they might remove ingredients to create things like extract products or edibles and things like that. And then the third one is retail. So those three, you can have co-ownership when, you know, co-operations, all that kind of stuff. The other two are secure transport and your state compliance and safety center or lab, if you will. Um, those cannot have ownership interests in with the other three, right? Just to make sure. So, you know, Elizabeth, you were asking like how we're passing our tests and everything. I think so some of the credit I'm going to give to the labs because they're doing a great job with their testing out there. Um, some of it is, is that we're paying attention to our plants. And as we move forward here, we'll tweak things with our plants to continue to move the needle on the things that we want to see in our plants higher and the things we don't want to see on our plants. Well, they're already not there. So we're good with there. Um, but on the consumption lounge. So this is, this would be the sixth 
license type, right? And mm. they've, they've already put it out there in temporary consumption lounges. And these have been successful because at like a, a cannabis event, like a convention, you would go there, you'd, get, you'd go through a lot of booths of people talking about their products. And inevitably, there'd be some place where somebody was going where they were smoking for sure, right? And so what this just does is it acknowledges something that already is out there. The emperor's not wearing clothes. Let's get him some clothes, right? So it's like, now what it's doing is it's providing a sanctioned place where you don't have to look around. You can, you can go to the cannabis convention. You can use it in the consumption lounge area of that particular convention as well. So in my opinion, this is just making the state of Michigan more responsible in giving people sanctioned places to do things, right? So I think that the next logical step then is it not just being a temporary place to do it, but have permanent places to do it. Look, like it or not in our industry, or not in our industry, in our in our society, there are places where you can go to drink a beer, there are places go you can drink a coffee, there whatever that thing is, there are specialty stores where you can go do all of those things. And this industry needs to be treated the same if we're to get through this change management exercise that we're all going through right now, right? So I'm really excited about it. I think it's necessary. I think it's progressive. And I think like the outdoor growing, it's it's just, it's inevitable. Now, the last part that you asked about to me is the most exciting because what we are doing at Grasshopper Farms is we are creating a vineyard experience. So we already do tours. We already advertise that we do tours. We, act, we actually advertise doing an open house. And I think we were the first ones in the state of Michigan and maybe most states to actually advertise in a paper we're doing an open house at our licensed marijuana facility, right? That's, I get that people will give tours and you can walk around, but I don't know how many people have advertised that in the paper and then we did it on social media. We have people drive from over four hours away from out of state even to come to our open house. And it, it just came back to seeing what it is and seeing what it isn't, right? And it was very interesting on that. So what we wanna to add to that is, we wanna add a visitor center so that people can learn more about the industry more about the process that happens on our farm, right? We'd like to add things where you could probably buy some stuff to include flour. So again, if we go to that vineyard experience, maybe you're buying a bottle of wine to take away. But then that last piece is, you know, the vineyard experience is going out on that patio after you've gone through the whole tour and everything else and being able to do a taste of the flight of wines or whatever that equivalent might be. So we're working on that as well. And certainly that will be something that we'll offer that last one might be the last piece that comes, but the retail piece will definitely be here as soon, as soon as we can. And definitely the education is something we'll continue doing as well. When people come to our farm to take a tour, whether it's the open house or just a, a small group or a person taking a tour, our team treats it like this. Introduce them to you, introduce them to the team, show them what we do, show them how we do it. Do not try to change minds though, no matter who that person is, okay? Because it's not our job to make somebody more accepting of this industry. It's our job to show them what we're doing in this industry and then let them make their own assessment. And the neat thing here, if we keep doing it the way we're doing it is 100% of the people who have come and taken the tours, of those, plenty of them are still arms braced, I'm not okay with this industry. When they've left our farm, interacting with our team and seeing what we're doing and how we're doing it, they might leave saying, I'm still not okay with the industry. But a lot of them then started saying, but I'm okay with what Grasshopper Farms is doing. Seems very organized, very clean team seems very uh, capable and competent as well. That's how we have to conduct ourselves right now. So I'm also wondering or thinking about that cool consumption lounge that I can go to instead of a bar where I'm with like-minded people and you can just smoke some cannabis. Yep. 
Yep. And I completely agree that like if we, you know, at least in Pennsylvania as a Commonwealth, I do not think at all so, since the state still runs our alcohol that there will ever be a time where like cannabis and, and alcohol will be sharing the same consumption lounge. But like Elizabeth said, having a place with like-minded people to just gather, you know, maybe it's a coffee shop and a juice shop or something like that, but that also allows for people to gather and safely consume, I think is just such a beautiful concept. I think it could really bring and create more community um, around cannabis because it's these safe spaces. And the idea of how if you, the, the analogy with and comparison to wine is perfect because, you know, we, you know, the, the tourism of, you know, going out to Napa and touring these different vineyards and getting to sip their wine and enjoy the view is such a, an important piece of like getting involved in, in wine and the love for wine that, I mean, for the love of plants, I mean, I feel like being able to enjoy the cannabis right after you've toured the facility would really change a lot of people's perspectives on how it's grown and then getting to consume it around the people that actually care for the plants and grow it, I think would just be so fantastic. So hopefully we're going to we're gonna see how things work out in, in uh, Michigan, but I'd love to see this become something that becomes nationwide as our country goes towards ending prohibition. I think you're right, Gina. I think what we've got to do is we've got to show regulators how we do something responsibly. So, you know, one of the nice things that we have heard from regulators in Michigan is that we are the most compliant facility in the state of Michigan. And whether or not there's somebody who is just as compliant is irrelevant. It's the fact that the state regulators are taking the time to say this out loud and they followed it up by saying, would you be interested in helping other facilities improve their compliance acumen? And so our answer is always yes. We're always going to work with people. I never charge anybody for a consulting fee. I've talked to two businesses in the last three days who are like, hey, I'm trying to do this. What would you do? And I just try to help everybody. That's my second priority, right, is we all work together on stuff. So I think if we can show regulators how these things can be done responsibly, because at the end of the day, here's something I always tell my team or a frustrated person who's trying to get through the process and they're mad at regulators. I'm like, don't be mad at regulators. It was not that long ago that we told our regulators to write regulations against this, right? And it was for a long time. And now we said, okay, we're okay with it now. Now go write that program. That's really hard to do actually. And to be able to do that, and it's nobody's full-time job doing that. In the beginning, it's always like, this is part of your collateral duties, right? And then let's remember that these folks want to get reelected. So they, they're adverse to doing anything controversial, at least by their base, that's going to maybe make their constituents not want to reelect them because they screwed up the marijuana program or something like that, right? So I think as, as we continue to show people how this can be done responsibly, we'll be in good shape. For us, how we'll contribute to that is we post a lot on social media right now. We update our website with a lot of kind of updates and reports, if you will, on like talking about what we're doing. So we're just trying to be a good example there. I think as we get into like this season and certainly next year, um, we're really going to start focusing more on July, August, September, and October of being times when we're really pushing people to come to the farm because those are the months when it's the plants with the biggest. And my personal favorite is actually August because this is before the flower or the, the plants go into flower mode. So that means that the, the leaves themselves are big, they're lush, they're super green because the plants haven't started to create the flower or like put their resources into the flower, right? So they're just, they're like, and our, our plants are like Christmas tree size. They're huge. I mean, they're so big. We even had 
somebody come out with his fiance and they took their engagement photos out at our farm <laughs> because it was just, it was beautiful. But I bring that up because I think people already do that at vineyards too. So mm-hmm. if we can bring some of those already accepted and normalized activities that people are already doing and maybe, and I hate comparing us to beer and wine and liquor, but, but you know, if we were to take some of those activities and bring them over and show how they're being done at our place too. Yeah. I want to get a wedding at the farm, right? I want to, I want to make these things happen so we can see again what it is and also see what it isn't. Right. I think that's important. So back to the money, Michigan is, <laughs> is making a lot of money. And uh, Gina actually found something the other day that really outlined everything that they're spending cannabis uh, tax money on. And I just wonder uh, if you feel like they're doing a good job with that. And if you're being taxed fairly. I think that Michigan is a model for how it should be done. And so let me be clear. I think you can look at any of the states that are either considering or actually executing against a cannabis program. And you can definitely say, tweak this, change that. Okay. So, and Michigan included. Here's what I love about Michigan though. You can go to Michigan's website and you can see exactly where they're spending their money. And they have very comprehensive reports as well. I'm a data geek. Uh, My team knows that I will often say the numbers will tell us what to do. We're not going to make an emotional decision here. Okay. And I think Michigan's doing a very good job. If you want to get into it, they, they, they give some very detailed numbers on things that you can go look at if you choose to. So I think Michigan's doing a great job there. Michigan also is a state where they're helping people to expunge their records a lot more aggressively than I've seen in some of the other states too. Now, again, I know there are a lot of different programs out there. And even in Michigan, between the different counties, it's different. But there have been times where counties say, all right, everybody who comes to the sheriff's station on this date, what we're going to help you do is expunge your record. So come on down. There's no risk of showing up. Even if it's things like you can't be expunged for, you're not being taken anywhere. We're just we're helping you out. That's the kind of activities that I, I really think that is the next step here to lean in. I think we're not going to see it as widespread, though, until something changes at the federal level which is interesting because right now the feds have all said, hey, you can grow it, you can bank it, you can sell it, you can use it. They've acknowledged everything for all the state programs. They just simply said, you got to manage it at the state level right now until we change the the actual um, category of this particular product at the federal level. So it's all there, but I think a lot of states are still waiting for the stigma of somewhere it's not legal to be released. And then we'll start seeing more active social equity programs, Uh, maybe better ways to spend the money. And I think some of it too, though, Elizabeth, is that people are still trying to figure out what are the best ways to spend on it. Do you take money from this program and put it into education? Do you put it into people who have been unfairly disadvantaged because they were arrested for this back in a time when it was illegal and now it's legal and that's very confusing for society? I mean, I think there's a lot of right answers there that people are still exploring as well. I very much like the way Michigan's doing it. They hold social equity seminars, meetings, and workshops all the time. And I think they give people a very good chance of either working in this space, owning in this space, or just participating in this space if they choose to uh, with all the programs that they're offering, with the tax bases providing. So you're, you're okay with how you're being taxed in the state on your business right now? I am. If I, if I were to flip now, I don't own a business in California and I'm not operating in California, but as I've talked to California operators, I hear about a lot of fees and taxes that they're encountering and also we'll call them 
licensure regulatory hurdles, if you will, or maybe even barriers is a better one because hurdles suggest you can get over it. And they're finding they're not able to clear those barriers and they're literally going out of business because they're being taxed and feed too much is what it comes down to. And that's why the black market's still having um, some success and not some, a lot of success in penetrating the California market is because the commercial market itself is still not set up in a way that really makes sense from a, just a, a product standpoint, I think. And I read uh, yesterday that New York, as they're moving towards their adult market, is having some issues with how it's going to be taxed, thinking that an eighth might go up to like 70 or $80 that, in the adult use market. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's going to keep that, that un, like the black market thriving, right? I mean, yep. if I if I can call a delivery service and get, you know, it delivered to me in the black market very quickly um, and affordably, um, versus, you know, going into a dispensary and having to spend an arm and a leg. I mean, I, I don't think it's helpful. And I'm just curious with um, the federal government moving towards adult use legalization, could this in any way hurt, it, you know, businesses that are working within states that they actually really like the plan, like having federal legalization? I mean, could it hurt? Yeah. So, so the short answer, of course, it could hurt. It depends on how they choose to really charge for it is what it comes down to. So the taxes okay. that will go on top of it. Again, this is what Will thinks. Uh, read an article yesterday that was talking about what are the taxation implications here as the federal rules change? Where are they going to try to take more than they're already getting out of it? Because they already tax on this, right? It's not like they don't. Um, so it's it will be the more question on, on that. Um, you know, a startup state that starts at $70 eights if, if that's the start and that's year one, maybe sustainable, maybe. Uh, but it's got to quickly come down like any other product out there. You've got to have all customers accounted for here. So that means you got to have your $20 rates and you'll have your $80 rates and everything in between. And it's based off of the quality and the marketing is really what it comes down to. I mean, look, when we go to a store, if you go to Trader Joe's right now, they carry two buck chuck. I don't think it's $2 anymore, but it used to be $2. And that's why they called it two buck chuck, right? And it was still, it was kind of one of those hit and miss wines where you could buy a bottle and it was great. Or you might buy one that's like, I had some of it and then I cooked with the rest of it. But you knew that going in with two buck chuck. It was only two bucks. I think it's up to only like four bucks now. But in the same store, you can find bottles of wine that are over $100. And we're talking about a grocery store that only carries about 3,000 SKUs as opposed to most grocery that carries 30 to 40,000 SKUs, right? So they're very, very picky with what they carry on their shelves. And you still have that range of wine in there. Cannabis has to be the same. You've got people who have a budget that's, that's smaller than other folks, larger than other folks. You have some people who are going to be looking at different numbers within the plant too. Some are... A lot of people are paying attention to THC mostly right now, right? So I think most consumers right now, what does it look like? What does it smell like? And what's the THC? And it usually goes in that order because you can see it and smell it before. You, maybe you see the THC before you smell it, but usually you can see it even before. But I'll tell you what, the farther up that that THC number goes, the less you care about what it looks and smells like, which is really funny because the THC is only a small part of that overall experience that any consumer is going to feel that I think loosely we call the entourage effect right now, right? And the entourage effect is really based off of what else is going on in that plant. What's the cannabinoid profile, right? And you're starting to like, I think, you know, having CBD like out there, like everybody knows like 
theoretically what CBD is, but I think it's kind of like you sprinkle some kale into a milkshake and now suddenly the milkshake is healthy. So sprinkle CBD into something. And now that thing is also going to give you some sort of a health benefit, whether that's inflammation or stress or whatever it is. And it's just not the case, right? It's, it has to do with a lot more than a, just the CBD, but what else is it interacting with, which is why they call it the entourage effect. And that takes us into beyond the cannabinoids, which is the terpenes. And the terpenes play a massive, massive part of what those feelings are, are the experiences that a consumer is going to have when they try the different strains, which is why you got to try different strains too, right? I mean, I like to tell people that like, if you get a headache, you, you usually have two different patient types out there. One is on the Motrin side and one is on the Tylenol side. And so what they just said was acetaminophen and ibuprofen. And then there's a lot of different products that are in those two. And the only confusing thing nowadays is somebody just came out with a product that's both of those combined. So it's like, which one do I take, right? But I say that because you had to figure out which one works for you. And I think what you're going to find with cannabis is that people are going to stop looking at the name. They're going to start looking at the components, cannabinoid profile, terpene profile, and then maybe other information the supplier and retailer gives them so that they can choose a product that gives them the effect that they're seeking. I think that's the biggest thing that we're going to be seeing here in the future. If I were to focus on one thing for a second, it would be sleeplessness. Okay. And I think that the challenge with lack of quality or quantity sleep, the challenge is, is that we've been trained in this world that I'm just working hard or I'm just going through a tough time right now, or I'm just grinding. We hear the word grind at work a lot, you know, things like that. Or, uh, oh, like I can do this. Successful CEOs out there only sleep four hours a day. Well, guess what? It's all BS. You got to figure out what is your magic number. And all the science says that it better be somewhere between six and eight, because that's the magic number that takes most people to actually get their recovery time when they're sleeping. But we don't call it insomnia if you can't sleep at night, if I'm just working a lot. When, when in fact, it, you know, so that maybe it is a medical thing where you're thinking too much about work and maybe this product helps you to sleep a little better at night. And I think that sleeplessness is something that's affecting more people in this world than probably anything else combined, I think, because we call it other things. It's not being grouped into one category, right? But the neat thing is when I got into this industry, do you know how many people started coming to me saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I take gummies before bed or I have chocolate before bed or I, have a, I got a pen I use before bed. It was always before bed, before bed, before bed or helps me sleep better. And all these people start coming out of the woodwork telling me this. I'm like, why are you telling me now? And they're like, well, you're in the industry now. Before you were you were like in the military oh, or you were a cop or other stuff. I'm like, yeah, but I'm still will. I mean, <laughs> but that was the thing. So now if we think back to this whole change management thing. We realize that people are having an internal struggle of something that I'm either curious about or I know does help me. It's one of those two, right? And and then how do we make sure that they get to places where they feel okay talking about it? Back to, I think, uh, when Elizabeth was talking about the social consumption lounge as a safe place for people to go, right, so that they can use it there. Same thing's happening in the retail shops, right? Retail shop designs started out as like this kind of like, you got to pass through a bunch of locked doors after being verified and all this stuff, right? And you had to be escorted. And there's probably a security guy who's standing outside. And there's probably one inside too. And it just felt like very much so like, is this okay? I know it said it's okay, but is this okay? And that's a normal feeling. Whereas now, I think in the industry, you're starting to see a lot more, what I've described, a retail experience that's more like an Apple store. It's bright. It's inviting. It has helpful people in there. You can self-tour yourself around the place trying to figure out what you want to learn, or you can ask somebody for help. And I think that's that's where we're going to see things going now with uh, everything that we're doing in this industry, for sure. 
And I'm so glad you mentioned the entourage effect um, and that you brought this up because now when you said that, it made me realize that the tax in New York had to do with potency only. And so the higher the potency of the cannabis, the more likely it was going to get a higher tax. So then to me, it's like telling the consumer, oh, well, is that a better product? Why is it being taxed more when that's not the way we want people to buy their cannabis? It's not take a look at each label and see which has the highest THC level and that's what you should go with. That's not how this works. So I appreciate you taking the time to really discuss and talk about that entourage effect because it really is so much more. And like that's why this educational piece is so important because people People need to understand that that entourage effect could really have lasting, you know, health benefits for them without even having the highest level of THC in their product. You're so right, Gina. And so like, you know, like I said, we, we grew 30 strains. We took 17 to market because we're very picky about what we bring to market. The lowest THC we have is, is just under 18%. The highest is just under 28%. Um, being an owner, I've tried all of our strains and I actually kept a journal on how I feel with the different strains just to kind of chronicle the different effects that I feel. So like, there, so one day I tried Red Pop. I just had one hit off of the Red Pop itself. And I sat down and did a lot of math and engineering related activities. It did not make me tired. It did not give me couch lock. It, any of those other things that we associate with that, it definitely gave me focus and energy. So it's just about knowing the different strains and what they're going to provide for you. I'll tell you my favorite though is Sunny D. Sunny D has 18, or sorry, yeah, 18.9%, so just below 19% on THC. It has 3.342% on terpenes. That's very high in this industry. If you get above 1%, people start paying attention, right? And we're above 3%. And that's my favorite strain out of all the strains that we have. It's the lowest THC-wise. It is definitely not a factor of how high is the THC. You know, it's a very confusing space um, for, for people to consider on this. And that's just one of those things we get through. I, I do compare it sometimes to the craft beer industry. I feel like when the craft beer industry was young, it was all about the ABV, right? So like you'd walk into a bar and you'd see a, a craft beer that was at 14% ABV. And they're like, I'll try it. I want to try that. What, what's that all about? You don't know the name. You don't know what kind of beer it is. You don't know who made it or how they made it. None of that stuff. It was just novel to try a 14% ABV craft beer, right? Well, the market has matured in the craft beer realm. And now... It's very little to do with the ABV. And now it's about, well, what kind of beer is it? Was that brewed here in your brewery or is this by somebody else? Then how did they brew it? Do, do they do anything else with their story? Do they hire locals? Like, there's all these other factors that you think about now. But I think the highest in the craft beer is what kind of beer is it, right? And so I think that eventually we will get to, well, what kind of strain is it? And people will be paying attention to those cannabinoid and terpene profiles as they're making their decisions on that for sure. You are such a wealth of knowledge. I mean, we have to, yeah, we have to have you come back and and we'll go off on other topics. But can you tell our listeners how to get in touch with you and how to learn more about your farms and your outdoor grow? Yeah, absolutely. So grasshopperfarms.com. That's that's the place where you can go. We have a lot of information on there. You can see our products there. You can see our people there. You can learn more about us. You can see our social links there as well. We're very active on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. We do believe that we play a part in this industry of showing what we're doing and how we're doing it. And we do it in all those places, the website and social media. Um, If you're ever in Michigan, definitely go over to our website immediately and fill out a form to come and stop by the farm and take a tour because, hey, how many cannabis farms have you ever toured in your entire life? Probably none, right? I'm just saying most people, probably zero. And so if, if you can plan it, I'd say August, 
And if you just happen to be in Michigan, then I would say definitely just come by either way. Michigan is a big state, so plan for it. Don't just think like when I was growing up in California, I'm up in Santa Cruz, I'd have a friend flying to San Diego and say, hey, how about we catch dinner tonight? And I'd say, I don't think you know where I am in California. <laughs> you know, So so uh, Michigan's the same way. If you're visiting the UP and you want to come down to our farm, probably not going to make it. It's a pretty colossal drive from there. But we are in Southwest Michigan. If you want to stop by, happy to give you a tour anytime. And I'm very, um, I think it's very important that we help each other. So if you're somebody who is considering either being a user in this industry or you want to operate in this industry, or you have any questions of this industry, you can go over to our website, you can fill out something. I will probably get back to you personally and talk you through whatever it is you're considering doing and happy to help out in any way I can. That's so amazing. We love the spirit of community and collaboration and that is much needed in our industry. So thank you so much, Will. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. So we want to thank Will Bowden from Grasshopper Farms for joining us today on The Vine. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of The Vine, a Plant Media Project podcast. For cannabis and psychedelic news, visit us online at plantmediaproject.com. Together, we can end the stigma around cannabis and psychedelics. Thank you.